Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange sees RA contributor Nina Posner sitting down with DeForest Brown Jr. He's just released a composition called Of Desire, Longing, on Planet Moo under the name Speaker Music. Pulling together audio recordings and improvised electronic percussion, it takes inspiration from the theories of Henri Lefebvre and Kodo Eschen. So apart from being a musician, Brown is also a theorist, journalist, curator and visual artist, all of which flow into this conversation covering speculative futures, the potentialities of repetition and his approach to live performance. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with speaker music is up next. your new record, you said it was influenced by, quote, considerations of vibe, momentum, and the chronopolitical in black music as defined by the cultural theorist Kodwo Eshin. So can we talk through the idea of the chronopolitical a little bit? Yeah, with that, I'm interested in, I guess, the idea of like a pointed collective experiences across like a set amount of time obviously specifically colonialism like the beginning of colonialism in like the 1800s what was like 1400s whatever like leading up to now so i mean code as a as a theorist was interesting because he like dug into like the idea of the black atlantic uh or translated slave trade um that paul gilroy kind of like wrote about in the book black atlantic um and he really like kind of burst the whole thing wide open by thinking about the sort of like the affect that would come out of like the amount of trauma that happened in like the transatlantic slave trade and like the sort of development of black people um sort of integrating as like freed peoples into america and like obviously um the other like diasporic parts i like how he considered music and culture as something kind of beneath the level of the product um so beneath the level of like the song that you're hearing like it's not well, I put these like, you know, melodies together in harmonies and like really structure like a three part like fucking symphony. It's um, it's just the emotion and the sort of habitual repetitions, these sort of reoccurrences that happen naturally amongst a group of people that actually like know each other. And um, it's just like a sense of home. And so he traces like a lot of black musics from like jazz and blues to, uh, like up to techno and like some versions of, uh, I guess, funk and rock and all. And um, yeah, in regards to, I guess, chronopoliticality and he found that music or sound has like a lot of information kind of like embedded in it that speaks a lot more, we'll say like universally than like the like digitized algorithmic, like English language um, structure. It's just more can be like felt from it as opposed to like, yeah, the symbols of words. So even the book that he wrote, um, More Brilliant Than the Sun was like a series of like sketches of ideas. It was kind of a jazz of um, laying out words and ideas that could potentially inscribe the sort of narratives like, buried in the frequencies of like various songs across black history and so for the record i kind of tried to do that myself and create a very neutral like casting out of frequencies that 
were honest from me, but would be black, not because like I'm a black guy like making music, but it's black just based on sort of learned like a history of music and a history of like lived experiences that I've had from living amongst black people. And yeah. And you share, you pointed to a couple significant influences on the new record, one of them being Les McCann. Yeah. And so he's a pianist and vocalist, but I know you've had experience playing in, I believe it was like you said, jazz band and marching band and you played the trumpet yeah. and the tuba. Yeah, I played trumpet since I was um, six or seven and tuba I picked up around early high school um, by necessity of like, I guess, inventory of people like they needed a tuba and i just like kind of took it up yeah it's really interesting actually switching to tuba from trumpet because um the entire like sort of amateur the composition of your mouth like changes and i began to think about well really just like a relationship to to sound completely differently because like my whole life i had played with this like sort of smaller hole in this like longer like architectural device then switching to something much more like um, large and that like actually would like, kind of like wrap around me um so i would like feel the vibration of it and um I personally thought I think I'm much better at tuba than I was at trumpet, but um, and that sense of musicality is something that just follows me because it's, again, lived experience. I habitually have, have heard music come out of my body and through an architectural device for as long as I can remember. So yeah, when I'm making electronic music, I'm not, there is no sort of like imaginary, like, I don't know, abstract idea of like frequencies out there. It's very like architectural and very like, um, there's a physical material that, that I'm like trying to get at. And I like Les McCann's work, I guess, towards the late 60s, early 70s when he made, um, he sort of like, he was one of the early guys to sort of adopt like electronic, like instrumentation, like in the jazz structure and sort of took the whole like Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis, like electric thing at like a little step further by really getting behind the mixing boards that you play with like multiple synthesizers and like two drummers. And, and I guess also like, I like the way that he would sort of do these like live takes, but then also like, yeah, spend a lot of time in the post-production kind of playing with the actual mixing and really getting into the frequencies on the board and like, um, yeah, adjusting volume levels to kind of create this sort of stereophonic affect. I don't know, Jimi Hendrix is also another person who, I believe he's actually one of the first people to really mess around with like multi-channel stereophonics. Um, Everyone thinks of him as a guitarist, but I think of him, of him as like a proper like electronic musician, really like playing with the speakers as a sound source and like the mixing board as a um, a palette for like a dimension hopping, if you will, or dimension like smearing. Because um, yeah, you, you hear stuff and it's like, you'll have kind of like a gu guitar attack coming on the left side and then like a reverb coming on the right. And it just kind of like really, it really fits around like your head. Like the whole stereo field is very like physical in that sense. Um, which again is something you, kind of think more about when you've played a physical instrument and like really been involved in like an ensemble of um and playing music in time with like other people and other types of like sounds um something i was like actually particularly obsessed with when i was a early trumpet player was this idea of playing like uh, the super c which is like it's like third octave like high like um like tonic note and it's something my father could do because my dad played trumpet like his whole life as well and the guy who taught him to play trumpet also taught me and um which was crazy. We like couldn't believe he was still alive. No, the idea of the super C for me was um was hitting a sort of peak physical audible sound like on the trumpet. That's like there's a, a pointillism to like high frequencies, but also it, like brings out so much more color in the lower registers when you like kind of scale back down. And so when approaching electronic music, there's also this sense of like multi scalability, like on a vertical level as well as like the horizontal of like stereo versus mono, like um. I guess perspectives 
And yeah, so when I sat down and like, well, I didn't decide to make a record, but when I sat down and like the record fell out of me, all of these things went into it very neutrally. So one like really shitty night, like two weeks after The Wages of Being Black was finished with uh, Kepler for PTP, I was like up with my partner where she was asleep and we were like kind of just, I was just like on the computer and I had a crack version of Ableton that I had used for The Wages of Being Black, which was the first time I'd ever like tried my hand at production. And um, there's this painting um, in my partner's room that kind of has this like red bar of light that kind of emits light from it. So you, the entire room is like bathed in a red light, which is like my favorite color, like because, you know, red power engines and shit. But yeah, I, I was sitting with this crack version of Ableton, like just kind of stoned because I have like insomnia or whatever. It was just like in a haze. And uh, this establishing note kind of came to me. I don't. I didn't really know how to use Ableton, but the, I just started stitching together like these audio samples, sampling various like field recordings that I'd taken on my phone and like um, lots of like jazz songs like Let's McCann and just kind of like really dematerializing it across the night. And by the time the sun came up, I had basically had like 50 minutes worth of like continuous audio and was kind of like, it's like a really gruesome moment where I like looked at myself. I was like, fuck, I have this album. It's like, oh, where did this come from? And um, and that kind of, um, we'll call it like religious, that kind of religious experience of just like exhaling audio is something that really, really struck me. It's something Kojwesh and also wrote a lot about in um, More Brilliant Than the Sun with uh, John Coltrane's music. He talks about like energy music and how Coltrane would kind of play an establishing note that would lead the entire ensemble and everyone would kind of have to kind of breathe in unison together in order to yeah, know when to to move the actual piece like there wasn't a proper score as much as there was like these intonations of intuition and just kind of pouring music into like the space until like i don't know the space was full and like satisfied and yeah and i guess that night i like satiated a lot of rage from the things that or the subject matter that like went into the wages of being black as death it was a completely different feeling that was more of um yeah i don't know i was satiated with my own like inner voice if you will yeah yeah I liked what you said too earlier about the the smeariness of it all, the smeariness of like influence. And then there's also like the mixing and the textures wise. It's very, yeah, the record now knowing that I hear that in it, um, that it just sort of came out and that, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And that was something um, I really liked and I want to return to that, but... I've noticed also in your your live sets, it's not as smeary per se. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. a bit more pointed. It's a bit more percussive. And having seen that video of you performing, it's very like energy. It's very movement, especially from, I know you had a recent tweet of like the stiff-limbed <laughs> people who do not dance. Oh, I can't stand it. So, okay. I'm from Alabama and like I grew up in the same neighborhood as Gucci Mane. Like you, you just like, people move to music like i've i would see like earth wind and fire and all those bands like play in the middle of like fields with like my grandma my like parents and they would all like dance to this like music where there'd be hundreds of people just dancing to like to black music and i mean then there's like football culture but like the marching bands and yeah when i moved to new york after like wanting to try my hand as like an artist up here and like a music journalist yeah started to going started going to clubs and it was the first time i'd ever really gotten to hear electronic music like in person and yeah i was shocked to see all these like white dudes just like <laughs> both like with their arms folded but also like kind of like stroking their chins like leaning over the deck as though they like like they can algorithmically figure out like what 
this like person who's getting paid to like to move them <laughs> like like yeah it's um the arrogance of the white male engagement with music was something i immediately noticed up here and like mostly like how bad they are at it once they actually get their hands on like the really expensive synthesizers and all that stuff and it just yeah so when i play it's like trying to completely interrogate this this history of stiffness and like uh an incelly like hoarding of a uh, of, of like public space that happens in like performance spaces and, i mean western classical music has like a whole history of like i mean i say all the time the theater is like a, a torture device set up by white men to like blast sound at like you know, defenseless people in the middle of the room. And like, I mean, like you had Hector Berlioz who would have like 300 tubas and like trombones and shit, just like, right. which I love the guy, but he, he was torturing people. He's like blasting them with sound, like inside of this like giant architectural, like fucking cage with like, and if it's all for God, then like God's like staring down at you, like punching you too, which I mean, that's why they like black metal and all that. Like, and that's why Burkhine is called church. Cause they like love being tortured. But anyway, white people have to work on that. For me, it's, um, as a, black southerner who is just like not interested at all in the asinine like practices of white male canical like involvements with melodies and silly little like i don't know architectural like musical backflips or whatever as a person who's not interested in that i prefer to just go into a space and work in front of people and do just kind of practice like the whole room is my workspace i'll leave and order wine and just like let the music play and I mean, the live shows are more pointless because I'm interested in using percussion to sort of vibrate an entire room. Mm -hmm. And then you just like leave it. Mm -hmm. You let people like deal with it and like move to it or, or not. I mean, it can be whatever it is. But um, I mean, but also like I fucking hate the fact that I'm making music like that wasn't the entire point of me moving to New York. I was moving there to like to be this like art critic. I've been writing for like a few years in Alabama um like I wrote one of the earliest reviews of like Holly Herndon's like debut album and like got to meet them online like through that and and I met all the fucking people from Pan like immediately like the first day I got here because I actually know what I'm doing when I move to a place yeah the music industry just isn't designed for people that actually know what they're talking about it's designed for white men that want to like trade gear and like trade like insults over like I don't know whatever like fucked up genre name they like tried to categorize something as like for that week to like sell it for like whatever price they want to and like discogs like fucking like smeagly bastards but you know it's um I wasn't interested in any of that I wanted to do actual cultural criticism and get to know sound on a very like like personal level get to know the artist and actually know like profile and like understand what they're going through but the industry doesn't work on that work like that it works more like a bunch of guys like chugging Red Bull and like doing ketamine because uh, they couldn't get a real job with their like Ivy League degree. Yeah. So now that I'm making music, it's kind of um, I did it because I realized you kind of have to like show people another way. You have to show people that maybe music can be enjoyable and maybe you can make money off of it by like actually dealing with it with like some damn dignity, dignity and respect. Mm. Um, I mean, there's no dignity in like a Dixon set at Bergheim to me. I saw him and Faze last year, um, I went in with this guy who like does Berghain's flyers, whatever. And cause you know, I don't go to Berghain like and pay. That's silly. But no, I went in there and like the first thing I saw was some guy just like slamming his head against a speaker and went to the bathroom. Cause I was like, oh, this is too much. And there's some guy like sticking his hand down his mouth, like pulling out crumpled up pills. And I was just like, man, you people have fucking problems. Like this is how I know techno stolen. Cause you like can't even interact with this music in like a decent, like humanly way. But no, I mean, all of this goes into the chronopoliticality of my own, like, uh, 
performance techniques. It's um, it's engaging every live experience I've ever dealt with that didn't necessarily pertain to how I felt people ought to like listen and like respect music. You're also a multimedia artist, a theorist, a curator, a thinker. You go through all these like various channels to very deliberate ends. And I guess like how do you pick and choose what you want to do and how you want to do it? That's very broad. No, no, actually that's really precise because like, I mean, that's why I'm mad about making music. I like was in the fucking Milan Triennial like at the beginning of the year. I had like a short exhibition at the New Museum back in 2014. I don't have time for the excuses that all these like bougie white people have made for like not hiring me and not like like literally shutting me out of like making a living wage within the industry. It's just little things like editors being like, oh, that just like doesn't quite fit our like aesthetic mm. for the day. And it's like, what's your aesthetic? This isn't even your music. Mm. Like You can't even trace it back to like the correct people. Right. It's very minutely curated and like, um, how should I put it? Neanderthalishly binary, like sort of understandings of um, music valuation, valuation and like uh, just presentation to me was um, something that made me realize I should, yeah, once this album came, I was like, I should just put it out there just to show people that like, you can make this electronic jazz. You can just like put it there and like give it a bunch of context and like end up on an RA podcast just like this and people wonder how. And I mean, the how comes from the fact that there's a whole large, much more respectable uh, industry machine outside of dance music. I mean, dance music is really small and really, um, how should I put it, wealthy and ignorant. I mean, if you want to know how small dance music is, like, just see where uh, RA's like number one DJ or whatever it is at the Grammys never showed up there. So it's like, you know, not that important. But, you know, RA does get a circulation of, what is it, 250 million viewers like a day, which means that they're uh, touching quite a lot of people in the world regardless, which makes them also very accountable for a lot of uh, the sort of narratives that they're constructing across time, uh, particularly the sort of bougie understanding of, like, the most expensive machinery makes, like, the best, like, squiggly sound over, like, another machine. But in regards to, like, hacking the system, I just kind of put the theory to practice. It's, um, I understand media. I know how like where money flows and yeah, you just talk to X person, make X deal. And then you just like end up in Y place with like Z results. And it's, it's really funny because like, I see all these people like in like uh, Facebook forums and like, I guess like RA comments and stuff. Like they talk a lot of shit about like, about like what music is like better than what other music or whatever, but they can't sign a record deal. They can't like, uh, they can't not make, music that doesn't sound like a car crash window because everyone else is doing it. They can't, you know, it's, uh, the hacking the system more or less is me trying to like address the like literal ghettoization of like, of like thought that's happening from the very binary and like uh, really unqualified thoughts of like, of just like music patrons over the last 10 years via like streaming, the streaming economy just kind of, uh, I mean, there's so much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And obviously you're not just limited to like these various I don't want to say like intangible artistic realms, but that's not the word. But you also do these um, sort of like object and fashion oriented projects. I see you're wearing your Make Techno <laughs> Black Again hat. We would like to shout that out, obviously. And then in addition to your work with Etcha, that Ting and Luz run. And I guess what what sort of tools become available to you when you're using a vehicle like fashion or something in that world 
Yeah, I mean, fashion's the only reason electronic music even managed to like break out of the ghetto of uh, incel like message boards, right? Mm -hmm. It was Rick Owens like playing Jalen's Dark Energy, a black person's music that like allowed, and also like Adult Swim again, like Flying Lotus picking up on who does the music for Adult Swim. He picked up on Warp Records and Ghostly and like kind of brought that aesthetic to a larger crowd. That's kind of what I meant about using media to like, to just do the thing, Mm -hmm. to just like make a career happen. Yeah, I've seen so many of these like fashion collaborations like over the years. Like obviously there's like Shane Oliver with the Arca through like HBA. You had Kottweiler with Holly Herndon a few years when they did like the exhibition like sustainable like plastic clothes or whatever. And um, yeah, and Jalen with uh, Rick Owens. And it's, I mean, the thing is when you have music, you have to have a lifestyle that like kind of goes with it, right? Um, Or just a brand in general. And so working with Etcha, um, which is a sustainable gender fluid um, uh, gender fluid apparel line that's um sort of these uh how should i put it loose is a painter that paints like sort of impressionistic um paints on fabric and like kind of impresses these like emotions into fabric and then that fabric gets turned into various like types of clothing for various like settings it's a kind of made of like a hemp fabric that like so the more you wear it the like actually the stronger it kind of gets um and both loose and ting kind of uh, lived in Berlin for quite a while and like kind of met there and then met again in like New York and like actually traversed these like rave scenes um, and wanted to make a both a clothing line but also like a work of art but also like a kind of culture that would sit aside to the sort of um, again sort of Nazi incel like Bergheim like techno aesthetic that like is so pervasive um, via places like Resident Advisor which I mean we could also talk about Mix Mag but that's a whole different aesthetic um We'll get to that later. Yeah, working with them allowed me to do a lot of like my sort of cultural thinking within a tangible like sort of marketing situation, which my partner Ting is like a statistical analyst and like actually does quite a bit of like marketing work. So we like kind of sit together and like scheme these uh, sort of rhythm and statistical analyses to just to engage the public in various ways, whether online or local, and to kind of, um, I guess, to draw a a straight line to that, um, to the global and local, which... I mean, I feel like that's something that's been really deterritorialized over the last 10 years via social media and like uh, media conglomerates, like grabbing entire scenes and trying to like really color what they look like. I mean, you can think about the sort of mass of music magazines that have been like placing colonies in Brooklyn right now to sort of decide what Brooklyn sounds like, but they actually won't go to the clubs to like see who's playing at each one. They like select their one club, like Crack Magazine selected elsewhere, RA is at nowadays. Mix Mag is at Avant Gardner because, you know, they love their money and their drugs. I particularly want to work against any sort of corporatized understanding of like what underground culture is supposed to look like. Maybe that's just me being anti-capitalist, but also like anti-white male definition. But I don't know. And that that's was like hand in hand with your unsound talk, which was, I believe, called assembling a black counterculture. Yeah, yeah. That's um. so the unsound talk was sort of notes towards a book that I'm working on that'll be coming out next year with the primary information. And yeah, it's, yeah, the idea of like working with that shit and doing the Make Techno Black Again hats um, is moving towards figuring out what a black culture looks like in a very holistic context. Um, And and using the word techno, um, so techno is short for technocracy. I know a lot of white people don't want to know that, but it's not, has nothing to do with like technology proper. It has everything to do with living in an authoritarian society, authoritarian society of uh, 
industrial technicians, i.e. white men at the top, like sort of moving entire people around like a giant system of like chain of commands. In business management, you have these systems called uh, flat organizational systems in which there is a, basically a boss, no middlemen, and then people who are disconnected from the boss. So like they're being like literally plucked by, by uh, an authoritarian like figure, which is currently how marketing works. RA says X uh, album is like really good. And then the listener like gets jolted up and they like listen to it via Spotify or wherever channels like RA pumps like their money into. And yeah, I don't like that kind of stuff. People have also been pushing the sort of like vertical system throughout like startup culture right now where it's you kind of control um, every single aspect of a single uh, chain of command. So you are your own boss and your own like laborer. But also that's like obviously unsustainable because that's called a monopoly, which Resident Advisor hasn't quite figured out yet because, uh, you know, they score albums or they don't score them anymore. They just like really, write really long essays about them now that are very colored and um, not with colored people, but it's just like flowery. But I mean, also you sell tickets, which means that you more or less have a, a say in like what club is identified and what music kind of goes into what club times the fact that you also have a jobs board, which was like too much for me because suddenly you can decide who goes into those clubs that you're now des designating across the world. I mean, Disney does the same thing, right? With like the Disney plus um, streaming platform, they like own several different companies and like, and thus they has like their entire, um, their entire demographic audience to like market to without any of those audiences maybe recognizing that it's all just Disney plucking the strings. But yeah, assembling a black counterculture is sort of dealing with like technocratic colonial thinking through the sort of stolen trade route of like techno across the last like 30, 40 years. And like kind of using that as like a primary example of like the seed of like American culture, this like black American industrialized music being, yeah, decontextualized and kind of. That loops, I think, background very well to this um Kodua Eshin quote that I found while I was um, looking up another reference that you touched on was James Stinson of Drexia. We can go into more of him later if you'd like, but um, uh, if I can just read a bit of this quote. In an American context, questions of futurity are absolutely critical for African Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, and all diasporic subjectivities, science fiction is by no means escapism. It's the reverse. Science fiction is a kind of theory of escapology, which enables you to diagnose the traps that, that society, especially a society based around police power, based around right, white supremacy, and based around a kind of aesthetic hierarchy, which continually refuses to accept African-American aesthetic projects, refuses to give them their due. So I feel like We've both in this convo and outside, we've talked a bit about this work um, and just sort of your past work in regarding like speculative futures um, and what that looks like. And you've also used the word gestural to describe, I think, your last wages of being black as death, but also um, perhaps this record, speculative futures, that quote, do you feel? Yeah, I mean... I like to use the word gestural because I feel like it's much more natural than composition. It's much more natural than what like what like audio programs or like digital audio programs like Ableton would like you to do or what like um, Beethoven's like under ignorant deaf understanding of music like wants you to like think about it and like 
I was like shocked actually when I um, started using Ableton because I was like, frankly, I don't I don't know why anyone would make dance music with that program. It's so like expansive, like sonically, and like you see these people like in the like the um, YouTube tutorials, and they like stick one kick drum and one clip, and they go doop doop doop, and then they get like a little snare, and they go doop doop like on it, and you're just like, man, that's like the best your like little like mind can do is come up with like little hypnotic like click clack sounds, and um. And yeah, so when I think about music in a gestural sense, I'm thinking about actually putting oneself into it rather than manipulating the listener with like, again, hypnotic like. Um, but I think about Surgeon and like how he's always like interested in hypnosis. And I'm like, well, that's psychotic. I don't want to make hypnotic music. Like that's, I'm not manipulating the listener. I'm just going to gesturally give him something. Just like, here's what I'm doing today. Here's what I'm feeling. You take it if you want. And as that relates to like speculative future as well, there's obviously like a difference at that point between making like hypnotic manipulative um, sort of progressive narrative music versus like something gestural. And I feel like gestural music just as it just opens up the possibilities of what futures can potentially look like. It's less um, resolute. Like you think about uh, the Wagner um, Tristan chord that's just like sustains for like the entire opera and everyone's just like, oh, a chord can just go for a long time. I mean, white people, they just get fascinated with the most minute details. And they just like watch this note sustain and like that's just incredible to them that something doesn't resolve in a neat, like like satiating little way. Like it's not like a little tasty morsel for them. And yeah, it's like what happens when you just make a bunch of music that's completely open and sustained that just like keeps going and going and like there is no resolution because life doesn't work like that. It's not um, it's not a fascistic little like uh, story to, like that you're telling to yourself to like justify 500 years worth of torture and murder and yeah i mean all these things like it's they all come together like i know music is cultural when it's gestural when it just happens i don't trust music that's composed i don't trust it when it um when there's something presented to me in like a nice little theater or like um i don't know you're a nice like little anonymous dj that's actually some oberlin dropout that like is like sitting in a, like Indiana like basement making like chill beats or whatever like when you but he's anonymous because like that's supposed to be cool like I don't like that that's uh you know burial I don't know about that I don't want to hear burials you know burials nostalgia of his brother's rave years I don't want to hear this like secondhand account this like grafting on of history and no one really should but yeah my involvement with like speculative art is um yeah it's just thinking in a different way yeah expanding your mind man. I mean, and that's what James Stinson was all about. You had the, the translucent record um, opening this uh, cerebral gate. And like all of his music was also very stereophonic and very like, it was techno, but it was also like, there was more space in it. It was less defined by these like, like I think about Morton Sabotnik's stupid ass saying that like he made techno because he put four beats in a row. And that's like the most Neanderthalish thing I ever heard because it doesn't account for the actual, I'm going to say sauce. But the actual like mm, that like goes into the music, it doesn't account for the thing that makes the music work. It's just some guy like, again, noodling around with like very abstract and very like, um, I don't know, I could like go off about white men all day, but you know. Yeah, which is why I think the repetition as it pertains to your music versus like just like like you were saying, just like kick, 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 kick. But it's much more organic in the compositions and these two long compositions that you've put together for the record which sort of just like flow and are very much like oriented around a repetitive theme maybe mm -hmm. but and then maybe this is where we get into exhaustion yeah. like repeating something and then 
the the A side seems to be a bit like tighter, um, not tighter, but like on more of like a yeah, 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 structure. Degrees, yeah. yeah, whereas the B side starts like like trip and fall over itself sometimes and tumble a little bit and just like affectively it gets a bit more like loose, but it feels so much more. Yeah, it's not repetition in the way that you go and you get your head pummeled by a kick. Yeah, it's not um it's not interested in perfection, it's interested in being alive. I mean, and that's something about white culture I find really fascinating is that they're not interested in being alive. I mean, all the political and economic systems are all based around death and like this like avoidance of the most obvious thing that happens to anything in existence. And um and yeah, it's it's actually kind of nice to be able to talk a bit about the second track because I get asked a lot about the first one. So it's the record of Desire Longing is done in two parts with empathy and then without excess. So there's this like, so I actually recorded over the album like about three or four times, like sometimes while on acid, sometimes while just like doing like technical, like little updates, but I would constantly like go into the music and like let it play and like add little like bits, like kind of etch in like a saxophone line here or there, like kind of like touch it up and frame it. But like I wouldn't, disturb what came out that first night and without excess was it was designed to be an interesting flip of the first track in the sense that uh there's a sort of behind the the really like uh multi-tonic like singing that's like on the front end or in the foreground in the background there's um two layers of of uh kick drums that i've kind of looped at a uh like kind of staggered in a loop and they kind of move around the stereo field in a very fractured and like like the hope is that those drums in the back would actually move the entire stereo field while the the sort of frequencies or the tonic like frequencies coming out of the vocals would kind of react to those and like fit into like different spaces. So it's meant to be a very like fractal music until it sort of breaks down into the drum line and then builds back up again, like with like additional parts where like the stereo field almost like, I mean, there's parts where it kind of glitches out almost and like you, um, you feel it like overload. But I was really interested in this kind of... Uh, yeah heat at the end of of a run when you've because it, it's funny like the first track is so long and so satisfying and then it just like you're like fuck there's 20 more minutes and um i mean and if anyone decides to listen to the whole thing like i really really like that moment um of the fuck there's 20 there's 20 whole more minutes um the idea of like without access with that is that i mean with the streaming economy you're kind of forced to like listen to these three there's a format of like these three minute songs that are like these like little dopamine hits so again like really repetitive simple hypnotic manipulative like little click clank sounds and like some woman in the background going like feel good feel good feel good because you know you got to have like that you know positivity vibes man you know even though the world's like crumbling apart it's um you know gotta feel good and yeah i wanted to sort of push not even the listener but the stereo field a step further to like I mean, and that's what happened to me with the record. I got to a point of like rage and like depression that I broke through and music came out. And it's like what happens when the listener gets taken like a step further than what they're used to. Like it's, and the thing is that it's, it's wasteful to, to just listen to one side of a vinyl. There's two sides. So, you know, you, you actually deal with listen it. Listen to both. <laughs> yeah, you listen to both because yeah. I put it there mm-hmm. and you paid money for it. But obviously the music industry doesn't care about value because they put all of music behind a paywall of $7.99. And it's fundamentally, I think, anti-capitalist to listen to these really long tracks and mm-hmm. like truly lose yourself in them. Why well, I also think, you know, like... Yeah, take, it's not optimized. We've talked about this too, but just like 
taking psychedelics and just like that goes against like capitalist time Mm -hmm. whereas like typical club drugs are very capitalist oriented i would say yeah i've been actually really interested in the idea of people taking ketamine lately and that tree route from uh, berlin over to new york and ketamine is a very particular kind of substance because it like slow i've only done it twice because you know you gotta see but um i found that the entire frame of your vision just like sways and like it fractures almost like uh like without excess in a way where it just like slants to the right or i just landed to the left and it kind of just like sways and i was like why the fuck would you want this in a club what's going on that like the pummeling 140 beats like aren't enough that you need to like Hmm take a horse tranquilizer and submit yourself further to boom 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 like this is like psychoanalytically that's there's some things that need to be worked out and as a rhythm analyst like that's kind of like what i like to do i like to go to clubs and go hmm like i went to melting point it was like oh these bpms are really high what's going on here you guys good it's uh, (laughs) yeah so speaker music Obviously, you're a DeForest Brown Jr., but you're also speaker music, and you've previously released um, like music slash sound art, I suppose, um, both like in collaboration with people like Kepla, and I know earlier you did like actual school things like this. Um, those speaker music you said is explicitly influenced by Henry Lefebvre and his like rhythm analysis, his term, um, and we can get into that too. Those themes resonate throughout your past work as well. And then you were performing as DeForest Brown Jr. and now you're speaker music. And so what new modes does speaker music offer up um, with this like new iteration of your practice? To be honest, speaker music, well, it's a name that's just kind of like floated in the back of my head for a while because I knew these people would push me to a point where I'd have to make music. It was just like, oh, if it ever happens, just speaker music. Just to like dodge these like, again, binary Neanderthalish like categories. Like it's not, people can't listen to it and go, that's, oh, that's chill step or whatever like fucked up, like weird little name they want to come up with. Um, It's speaker music. It comes out of the speakers. You deal with it. You don't sit there and talk about its qualities. You like, what is what does it do? And you talk about it in a very ontological and very, um, well, that's the hope is that you really actually deal with this part to not your like uh, narcissistic impression of it. I mean, the hope is that you would do that with any music. But but with Henry Lefebvre, um, I chose him specifically because I like the way that he completely kind of shatters the Western canon of like philosophy. He wrote a book, I believe it was like in 68 or some shit um, called Metaphilosophy, where he has he starts the book with about eight pages of uh, graphs and notes about the entire history of Western philosophy, the logics and just basically a kind of like little keynote on like what white people have learned like in the amount of time of like pre-Socratic to uh, Kantian philosophy or no, I guess he works his way up to Nietzsche. Yeah. So like modernist philosophy and uh, it's not a lot. And he spends the rest of the book just like deconstructing all of it going, wow, these idiots sat down and went, what's life? Like Descartes was in the middle of like the dark ages while his peers were like rolling around the mud. He was like having these like severe like brain like aneurysms And he looks up one day and goes like, I think therefore I am this like psychopath. It's just like, I think. And I mean, um, yeah, that's the best, the best the entire Western world could come up with. And I like that Henry Lefebvre sort of took philosophy out of the mind and began to deal very tangibly with like the sort of uh, chronopolitical situations that Western uh, religion kind of imposes on like everyday life. And obviously that's a way for me to step away from the more 
like sort of racially influenced music that I was doing with uh, Kepla. So there was like Absent Personia and The Wages of Being Black is Death in which I like, those are meant to be art projects in which I, with Kepla, sort of excavated the history of black music in a very abstract way and kind of built a, like a sonic body of it through like my own field recordings and like kind of offering of my own like body over to this like sound artist to like manipulate into yeah, these like fragments or impressions of like my kind of like uh, philosophical blackness. But with speaker music, I wanted to sort of initiate what a painter and philosopher like uh, Turquoise Dyson calls black compositional thought, which is just thought run off of the 400 years of Trump, like the sort of fight or flight, I guess, initiatives that would go into sort of like intuitive um, composition of like anything, whether it's painting, music, running, um, basketball, like whatever it's, I wanted to sort of put that into practice in a very neutral mode through speaker music and just, yeah, play the speakers. Yeah, and I think that tracks based on what we've just talked about. So sort of to close out, you're presenting an event at Artist Space here in New York on December 13th that will be sort of celebrate the release of the LP on Planet Mew. And you're also putting out a related book with Ting, who is your partner and your collaborator. Um, so can you tell us a bit the, uh, can you tell us a bit about the event and just what's next? So the event is meant to be just due to, um, basically the album ironically is coming out in the last month of the last year of the decade, which as a rhythm analyst, like I observed that Americans switch behaviors every decade. I always say Americans, uh, they work in three decades. They need three decades to learn a single idea. There's the thesis decade, the, the antithesis decade, and then the synthesis one. Yeah, America's been out of whack because the synthesis one was in the 90s and then 2000s was all, was all fucked up. And then in 2010s, we've been making Deconstructed Club and selling ourselves on Instagram. For, so obviously, like, things are a little off. But as we move into 2020, I wanted to use the album as like a final statement on on everything I, that I had heard and experienced across the decade. The book with my partner Ting is um called Quarterly Reports, and we sort of sketch out just like little impressions of events that we had been charting across the years, sort of like a, like Disney buying Fox and relating that to Midsummer, and yeah, just kind of. I mean, I'll say breaking down like what we consider to be the fall of white male hegemonic culture. Like you have like Disney, this multi-million dollar company, like literally buying multiple companies, multiple franchises and like building a sort of cultural monopoly. Um, at the same time as this like psychotic white dude makes a film about white people in like a dysfunctional relationship going off to like their native land and like Sweden or whatever and being like brutally murdered <laughs> in sacrifice to like, to stop a, uh, a dwindling pure like bloodline it just like it's those things happening in the same year was a little too much for us i mean especially in the face of things like nina kravitz like wearing cornrows and like coming from the other side of the planet and just acting like she has no clue what's going on it's the book is just a year's worth of statistical and rhythm analyses of uh of just american consumerist behavior and kind of building a um just a lot of context around the album and then i will play parts of the album sort of breathe into the room for about three or four hours and just like play as a uh, loose paints on like one wall and like eventually like a etcha like kind of uniform will like come out of that uh remedy food um who's done a lot of like foods for uh fourth world and like sustained release will be making um really delectable like bioremedial um 
hors d'oeuvres that kind of taste like the album, if you will. Amazing. And yeah, the hope is that we'll just marinate in a uh, non-hedonistic New Year's kind of resolution together. And maybe um, it's called Drape Over Another, and the hope is that we just kind of sway over time 